Welcome to season nine of Interdisciplinary, where we are discussing information and research in support of our upcoming symposia, which you're probably tired of hearing about now, but that's too bad because here you are again. It's within reach. It'll be at the end of February. It is the quest for information and research. Early bird pricing is available now. You should get it while the getting's good. We'll be excited to see you. It's a virtual conference. You can attend in your pajamas. Um, I will be attending in costume, so look forward to that, as will Cal Cates. Uh, this whole podcast this season is brought to you by the wonderful people at ABMP. ABMP, Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals, is proud to sponsor the interdisciplinary podcast from Heal Well. Massage therapists and body workers who join ABMP get meaningful resources that make a difference in your career, including free online CE courses, online scheduling included with the ABMP Pocket Suite app, and comprehensive liability insurance that provides protection and peace of mind. Can't get enough podcast inspiration and information? Listen for the ABMP podcast with regular guest hosts Ruth Werner and Allison Denny. Discover why members expect more and get more at abmp.com. And today we have um, a special guest again because we're into the guests this season. But first, upon Cal Cates, what you got? Well, and first, I think that we've just happened upon some Patreon content to debate the age-old question of: Is it pajamas or pajamas? It, Maybe pajamas. we could take on. This is a debate. It's we pajamas. could take on pecan or pecan. Oh, pecan. I mean, while we're at it, right? Pecan. Yeah, pecan. Totally. Mm. Pecan. Mm -hmm. mm. Anyway. Um, so <clears throat> I got a new pet. It's a termite. I've just Clint. Clint eats wood. Oh man. <laughs> oh. oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever declared that my pun was funny. <laughs> Boom. Oh, I like uh, it. I'm getting you. Thank you. I also have a pun. Um, this one is for our guest actually which is what do you call a knight who has a good sleep schedule sir Cadian rhythm oh that's so good for our guest today <laughs> that is absolutely fantastic that is so i'm good. writing that one down too. <laughs> oh man as long as we're doing it all right i won't be able to use it any other time so i have a second one which is oh, yes. why did the hypothalamus join a band because it had great circadian rhythms <laughs> Nice, nice. Wow. Oh, I feel so welcomed. <laughs> That's excellent. <laughs> so special guest, would you please introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Lauren Fowler, and I am a professor of neuroscience at Wake Forest School of Medicine. And I study biological rhythms, including circadian rhythms. And one of the things that I also really enjoy teaching is statistics. Which is lucky for all of us. Because Said three I know, people ever. Yep. Because I know you all hate statistics. So. <laughs> well, um, Lauren, I, I hated statistics when I took it as a student. And it why wasn't did you until I it? started teaching it that I actually liked it. What, what changed in the meantime? Uh, when you teach something, you have to understand it to make it make sense. Oh, I mean, in order to be a good teacher. And 
I think most of us, when we learn statistics, we're just memorizing and we don't really care, right? I mean, it's just, ugh, I got to get, you know, I'll, I'll memorize this formula. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I really started to understand it. And then that whole pesky dissertation where they make you actually do research and statistical analysis that helps. So a pesky. Bit. That pesky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Lauren will be teaching, you may have guessed it, statistics and um, charts at our wonderful symposia. Um, I believe the title is something like Statistics and Charts Without the Tears. So, Hopefully it won't make you cry and it won't make you take a nap and it won't do any of those things. It should be a fun experience that doesn't make you want to cry every time you pick up a research paper. I, I think you will cry the tears of liberation. Yes, absolutely. I, I like that. I like that. Yes. And um, hopefully it will not bore you. Um, I, I do like to try to make it fun and exciting, but no, you know, no pressure. No pressure. No pressure. Seriously, I wish you guys could see Lauren's face. Like, it, she's so excited about this. Like, I, if you're bored, I think it's going to be on you. I have yeah. heavily caffeinated this morning. That's excellent. <laughs> That's excellent. <laughs> Just another little hint about what makes statistics fun. <laughs> stay sharp. Stay sharp. Um. So I wanted to ask about teaching stats and charts and things and how you make it less overwhelming for people. I believe many people get um, overwhelmed by all the numbers. Well, I think it depends on who I'm teaching. And to be honest, that goes back to um, just a little bit of my history. I taught middle school for uh, a couple of years when I bless you, bless you indeed, (laughs) but it was between undergrad and graduate school. And I really liked them. I liked the kids a lot, but I think because I still thought flatulence was really funny. And so, but I taught seventh grade um, algebra and this was a part of what I taught. And I think as a, a middle school teacher, part of your goal is to make things as interesting and relevant to the students as possible which then set me up to teach college statistics, which I taught for 19 years um, at the undergraduate level. And then I started teaching in a medical school five years ago, and I taught statistics and biostats for the first two years. And I think seeing the progression of how statistics are used from a very basic middle school level all the way through what your physicians are using was really helpful for me. So that I can see the bigger picture of what you should be learning early on to make it make sense later. Um, And I think this is it is not the fault of our um, educational system. But I think that that we have teachers who are required to teach things um, so that students perform in a certain way on the test. Mm -hmm. And um, without the ability that I've had in my long career to. to see how it applies later on in their life. So, um, but that has helped me. Um, And so one of the things I do is I just try to make it relevant. So of course with seventh graders, it was always something funny and we would do something, you know, like um, some type of research question that involved things like toenail clippings or, you know, something really fun that that they would get into. Um, And then at the undergraduate level, I taught in a psychology department and we would do things like we would give each other little assessments in class. And then the students would use that as our data. Um, With medical students, it's very applied. And I think that that's really the best way to do it is to learn it and apply it in an applied way. 
you don't want your physician to be able to sit there and say, well, the formula for correlation is R equals the square root of, you know, and then go on. You want them to be able to say, um, and when I look at the results of this study, I see that this medication is preferable and has fewer side effects compared to this other medication. So I think it just goes back to the way that we all think about things, right? Um, as a seventh grader, what are you thinking about when you take the test? I'm memorizing the formula. I'm typing it in, you know, do I get to use my calculator? Um, as a physician, they're thinking about health outcomes. And I think that as teachers, if we can put it into the perspective of relevance, it's ideal. Um, but again, teachers, especially in public schools, don't often get to choose their curriculum. It's it's given to them of, of uh, what they're what they need to do. So it's really we just kind of need to change our mindset in general. Well, that, I was wondering, I mean, as a liberal arts leaning person uh, who values storytelling, I feel like, okay, like what I need to do to really like get into statistics is to understand how to use them to tell a story. And I'm curious if part of your teaching, because the thing that that I feel like I, I find myself trying not to do and that I see other people do, I don't know what's happening inside them if they're also trying not to do it, but is you, you see the part that that says the thing you want it to say, or like the part that you can understand and you just sort of stop, even though there are lots of other statistics that create a broader context that say like, so this is an interesting data point. But when you zoom out, it doesn't quite slam dunk the way you were hoping it was going to. And like how this is, I mean, the I feel like we should just change the name of this podcast to, to like, what is critical thinking? Because I feel like right. this is, this is the question, right? It's like information is living. And so are we, and that's not always a great combo. Well, I, I think that you have made it an excellent point. And first of all, just as humans, we always want to be right. Right. I mean, we're the heroes of our own story. We always yeah. want to be right. So you know, and if you'll remember, again, back to middle school, your hypothesis testing, like first you come up with a hypothesis and then you run the experiment, you're going into it with an expectation that you're right. So, of course, you're going to try to see the parts of the data that support what you're doing. Um, uh, and, oh, and I'm, I'm going to have to think about the name of this book. There is a really, really good book that talks about this, that talks about um why the general public doesn't believe statistics and it's because <laughs> because we believe what we want to believe yeah so and it goes back to things it, it talks about global warming but it goes back to like the 40s and 50s and cigarette smoking wow um, and and about how um if you have one study that says cigarette smoking doesn't cause cancer then then anybody who wants to smoke is going to believe that study Nicotine and, is more compelling than science. Or, exactly. <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's because science has a bigger burden, right? I mean, because we have to be able to replicate over and over and continually test a theory. And I think that's what the beauty of statistics is. So statistics are just numbers. And as humans, we put our own biases onto it, but the numbers themselves don't lie. It's, it's us. And so that's one reason why, um, and I maybe, maybe lying is harsh, but just to say that we have our own bends, you know, like we have our own way of looking at things and lenses. So that's one reason why replication of studies is so important. So that if I do a study and I get certain results and I interpret it a certain way, someone else should be able to do the same study with a different group of people and keep finding the same results. Unfortunately, in science, if we want to publish, 
you, they don't want you to publish things that have been replicated 50, 60 times, right? I mean, they're like, okay, somebody showed that. Now you go do something new. But really in science, we should be replicating over and over and over again. And otherwise you end up with one random study that, you know, everybody sees running along the bottom of the screen when they're watching Good Morning America. And they're like, that study proves this, you know, and then they don't ever hear anything else to refute it. And so it really just, it goes to, um, it, it really is critical thinking, Cal. So I think that you raise a fantastic point that um, it is really hard to set aside our biases and to look at the data in a way that um, lets the numbers speak for themselves. And as a scientist, that is very hard for me because you invest a lot of time in things and you're like, I really want this to show something, you know, I, as a pharmaceutical company, I want my, to show that, you know, the millions of dollars we put into this show that my drug has an effect. Um, or as a teacher, I want to show that this teaching methodology that I invested all this time in has an effect. Or as a person who tried this random weird diet that I saw on TikTok, I want to be able to say that <laughs> it had some type of effect, right? <laughs> um, yeah. And so it's, um, it's really challenging, but I think that's the, the, the nice thing about statistics is that it is um, not specific to uh, a certain gender, to a certain country, a certain ethnicity. They are numbers and we all put our spin on it. So it's an all-inclusive way of looking at things. There's a radio station around me that really likes to, um, in an attempt to break up the music on the radio station, uh, likes to talk about pop science stuff. And they bring up these studies and they're like, five out of 10 people, blah, 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 blah. Or like, do you want to be more effective in your dating? Blah, 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 blah. And half of me when I listen to it is like, stop it. I can't believe you're doing this. That's such crap with science. You just, I, I can't believe that you're reporting this stuff because you know it was only one and you know it was like eight people in the study. And then the other half of me is like, oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. We were just listening to um, Michael Hobbs has a new podcast um, called If Books Could Kill. And and it's he and so his good. he and his co-host are taking apart these books that are like have really changed cultural thinking about. And the first book they take on is Freakonomics. And it's exactly what you just said, Corey. Like it's these things that you're like, holy cow, I never thought about it like that. But the other thing I didn't think about was that they just like blew apart some assumption or some understanding that I had in a paragraph of a really complex thing. And why didn't I question that? And, you know, they're like, yeah, but how many millions of people grabbed this book off the rack in the airport, read it? And, th and they're like, and we're not even just talking about lay people. We're talking about policymakers and people who have changed the way we understand poverty and healthcare and whatever, because these two white dudes got together and like pulled together pop science snippets and people were like, this is way easier than reading actual research. Right. And that's, that's why, you know, if you've ever done a research paper and you read the abstract only and not the rest of the paper, um, because it's like the cliff notes version and, um, <laughs> guilty, uh, <laughs> you know, but it, we in all. part, but part of it is because we don't understand the statistics in the results section. So, and I think that that is where, that is one way that 
scientists, um, in order to be better scientists, we need to be able to communicate better with everyone, with each other and with the general public, because that, to me, that's a huge failing of science. Um, and that's one of my goals um, as a teacher is to help my students, especially my physician students, to be able to communicate with their patients. Because um, it's they're speaking a different language. And if you're talking to a physician, you're probably not happy, right? I mean, <laughs> something's going on. Um, sorry, the book is Merchants of Doubt. Merchants um, of Doubt. Merchants of Doubt is a book that is a, a, about how just a few studies completely obscured the danger and threat of smoking and um, how carcinogenic and dangerous it is. And then it goes all the way from um, like the 1940s all the way through climate change. And I'll give you an example that Merchants of Doubt actually uses. Um, because charts and charts and figures are so powerful because most people are really visual in the way that they interpret things. It's our primary um, sense that we use and we have more cortical representation for it than any other sense. And so when you think about what we really think about and remember and learn from most people, it's visual cues. So if you present, if you give them a figure that is very powerful, they remember that and almost to the point where they ignore other information that seems to make more sense. So, and um, there are some famous figures from um, early on in the debate about climate change in the 1990s, um, where they're like, well, you can look at how um, it patterns over time and you see that there are patterns over time of there are changes in global temperature and it um, goes up and down. And so the fact that we're going up is not really that unusual. But then um, if you look at the figure, what they've done is the little railroad tracks on the y-axis that tells you, you know, like there's a break in it so that because it's exponentially so high that it wouldn't fit on the paper um, because the levels are going up. And I don't want to turn this into a climate change podcast. And I don't um, I just want to say that the, the data are fairly clear if you look at the way that the data are represented without coming at it with your own personal bias of what car you drive. <laughs> yeah. Well, so interesting that it's a railroad track that, um, but yeah. anyway, um, yeah, but I think, I mean, I don't know, we're not, we're not opposed to making this a, a climate change podcast. I don't think, cause that's another thing that people don't want to be honest about, but I think part of the thing that's interesting and maybe you can be like, that's not at all related to what I'm saying. Um, but like, even when we look at something like climate change, the it became this debate about whether it's our fault or not instead of like it's happening let's do yeah. a thing about it and yeah. the, i think that's another thing we do with data is like we use it to place or remove blame and it becomes like this sort of like cultural emotional investment as well as just like scientific data about what's actually happening absolutely and i think that that's that goes back to people can use numbers any way they want to um there, um, there's a textbook I used when I taught at the undergrad level called How to Lie with Statistics. <laughs> and it's, it's, um, it, it's kind of, I, I used it to help show the students that people will use data, they will use numbers however they want to. And you can use, and you can say this, these numbers show this. And it's, it, you can use things to support your perspective, even though it's not really what the numbers are indicating. And I think we just, the more educated we are as consumers and the general public, 
the harder it is for people to do that. And so that's one reason why we should all invest the time and energy to really understand charts and tables more because they it influences us every single day in our policies, um, you know, in, in our um, just daily lives. And so, but I think you're absolutely right that um, it's, people will take the data and instead of focusing on the data itself, they focus on who's to blame. So, um, but it's, there, there is no denying that there are changes in climate. There's no denying that there are increases in cancer rates when you smoke cigarettes there, you know, but if you, if you want to go backward and kind of go upstream and say, you know, what's the cause of this or who's to blame, that's fine, but you can't change that now. You can only change what's downstream. (laughs) Yeah. So, but that's, so I guess, you know, putting that all together, it just shows that you can think of statistics as numbers that represent certain things. People tell the story they want to tell. um, And you can have one paper that two people look at and draw completely different conclusions, which again, goes back to why we should um, all be more educated about how um, data are represented so that we can kind of call BS and say, you just drew a conclusion from this paper that is not, that's not what the data represent. And I hear that all the time. If you, if, you know, oh, I'll have a relative who says, oh, I saw this study that proves that this, I'm like, well, you have one study that found a significant result with this one sample that was probably done with intro psych students, you know, in college <laughs> course. Um, so it, it just, you have to think critically about where does the study come from? Is this a cancer study that came from a, um, from the CDC or that came from, um, you know, uh, RJ Reynolds? Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is, uh, Corey, you have a question. I have another question about this, but you have, I, I feel like your questions get precedent because this is your season, man. <laughs> um, so I had two I thoughts. One was, laugh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, one, one was a comment that like, can you imagine how much better off we would be if people obsessed over lying statistics instead of true crime? And if there were like all of these millions of podcasts and TV shows about lying statistics or yeah. false statistics or like how to deal with them instead of like more serial killers. Lying yeah, which, statistics by the way, is like a is weird true statistics crime. in Excel. That is such a great idea. That is right? such a great idea a because you would be able to find things from literally every corner of life. I mean, you could find crime data, you could find politics, you could find you know, things about food insecurity, uh, you know, uh, just everything, um, because the data are often misrepresented. And even if they're not misrepresented, people just don't know how to understand it. They're like, I don't, I don't know what this means. Um, there's a, there's something called a box plot. And I don't know if y'all have ever seen a box plot. It's Mm -hmm. also called the cat and whiskers plot. And people look at that and they're like, (laughs) What the hell is no, this? It's just, it's just I remember like that it's called a cat out. and whisker plot, by the way, and that's pretty much all I remember. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can't read like, it but, anymore. So, but one of the reasons you probably don't remember is because you had a session where you sat down and they said, okay, we're going to go through a bunch of figures and here's a histogram. Mm-hmm. A and histogram. Here's a bar chart. Yeah. And here's a pie chart and everything. And um, I want 
I, I thought of a good analogy. And um, so I, I, I changed jobs recently and I'm working from home. And so I bought a uh, file cabinet from Home Depot and I got a really good deal on it. But of course it wasn't assembled when I got it. So got out my power tools, which I didn't need. I just needed a screwdriver, but still, I, Whatever. I, I them. I, they were surrounding me for support. And um, I opened the little book that told me what to do. And it said, step one, you know, lay out your things. Step two, do this and screw it together. Step three, this is how you turn it, you know, this is how you do it. And I thought if we taught statistics that way, it would make more sense to everyone because what we do is front load is we go in and we say, yeah. I'm going to throw literally everything at you. And then later you're going to figure out, do you need it? And so that'd be like if my uh, manual for my file cabinet said, here's how to use every tool that you will ever use ever. And then on page 87, it says, you need a screwdriver. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it goes back to relevance that we should be teaching statistics and statistical literacy um, every day integrated with every class. It should be part of our current events. It should be part of math. It should be part of science. And it can absolutely be in English and history. Um, and my personal opinion, and if anybody wants to run with this, you, you don't even have to give me credit. We should integrate more statistics into video games because if we did, everyone would know how to do it. So I you just, you just sang a song to Corey. I, I have things to say about that, which is that I play a lot of video games, like a lot. Um, I play very specific kinds of video games, but I also hang out with people who play video games. And the best and fastest way to get people to understand numbers is to be like, your success in this game depends on how you interpret all of this data that I'm about to throw at your face. And you need to know the best and most efficient way to do this thing and to get this thing done and to get all of your fireballs to do better mm-hmm. and to crit harder and to proc more. And in order to do that, you're going to have to use all of, so this is World of Warcraft mostly for anybody who's listening. Um, and in order to do that, here's 47 like pieces of data that you have to integrate into one character for you. And let me tell you, the people I know that play WoW, Fabulous at it. Fabulous. So I have a couple of comments for you. First, I don't play video games. I I play, um, I have a Sega Genesis. That's wow. A um, I, I find it hard to regulate my behavior when I play video games. So <laughs> I just had to abstain. Um, yes. And um, I made the choice that that was going to be an issue. I I applaud you for having enough self-control to be able to stop, um, you know, for bathroom breaks or whatever. (laughs) No, Corey wears space diapers. Wait, did I overshare? Just kidding. They're really expensive. So only Mm -hmm. when it's really important, I will say. I wouldn't have believed you if it weren't for the look on Corey's face. Um, no, but I was going to say my nephew um, is a video game designer, and um, I told him that I I think that he should create a video game that has the metric system in it, because yes. then then every every person from here on in the United States would know how to use the metric system like the rest of the world does, like the except rest for like of Liberia. The world. I think there's one other country in Africa that <laughs> doesn't use it. But, no thanks. Um, so, um, but yeah, if we because it's relevant and Corey, it goes back to what you said. If you can, if you can put statistics, if you put, if you put probability into, uh, into um, video games and say, 
you have to determine your probability of success before you're allowed to move on. Everybody would know how to do probability. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I think that um, it just goes back to relevance. We need to make it relevant instead of having a class where we say, I'm going to throw everything at you at once and you have no idea when you'll ever use it or how you'll use it. And instead, we should just show people this is how you use it every day. So, yeah. um, so I, the, the um, what else I was going to, the other thing, and this is totally random, um, that I did a research study. I was a subject matter expert um, consultant with the Air Force. So if you saw the first Top Gun, I was the equivalent of Charlie. Nice. I, was, I didn't wear those skirts. Um, I think that was a good call. Yeah. So um, <laughs> you haven't even seen my legs. Um, but, um, the, um, but one of the things that I did was I did research with air traffic controllers and pilots to try to figure out how to keep them awake for, um, longer duration, um, uh, just, yeah. you know, when they're working longer shifts. And so, um, I did a study with air traffic controllers that showed that, um, playing halo is an effective fatigue countermeasure. And it was to the point where their uh, commanding officer let them play Halo in their off time when they weren't in the control room because the stimulating effects from playing lasted as long as a cup of coffee. So wow. it was a non-pharmacological way to enhance their alertness and arousal. Um, and I, I published a paper on it. There's My son is not allowed to listen to this episode. <laughs> But but think but think about this. I, if your son does listen to this episode, this is why you shouldn't play video games in the evening when it, you're getting ready to go to bed because we're we're talking about you know three hour wow. effect. It's noradrenergic. It increases your norepinephrine and it's alerting parts of your brain that you want to be calming down. Um, okay. Now, if your son wants to play them, get up like at six thirty a.m. Okay. To, to preload to alert himself before he goes to school. <laughs> wow. I think it so. just changed Cal's life. Oh my gosh. Well, and you know, our, our prohibition not to get totally off track is like, you have to stop screening 90 minutes before you're supposed to be asleep. So whatever um, kind of screening you're doing, but that's not enough. Um, how old is your son? 12. So first, let me just say that what you just said is what I, with a PhD in this, it, what I did with my daughter and she called me a sleep Nazi. Um, she's 16 now, and but she really appreciates what I did because especially at the age of 12, it's incredibly important and sleep is so, so, so important. Um, and you can also tell um, your son that growth hormone is secreted during slow wave sleep. And so students uh, or kids who play video games more into the evening tend to be shorter. Wow. That's, I, I, the the data are very clear. That's so this is, this leads into a question that I've been sitting on as we've been talking. So I know, I don't know if it's appropriate to say a bunch of your research, but you have done a good bit of research about the effects of shift work on people's wakefulness and acuity and whatever. Um, So this feels like a place where statistics won't be compelling enough that like companies want shift workers to work long shifts and shift workers. I think there's a little bit of Stockholm syndrome maybe with shift workers that like, you know, this is, I love this life. This is great. Like I've like adapted. And so you can show me all the science you want, but like, we're going to keep. So what do you, this is a multifaceted question. How do you deal with like, no, the data is clear. 
and people going, that's nice. See you later. Um, and also, do you have a sense that like, I feel like as you're talking, bias has to really be baked into statistics education and like a better understanding of our, just the naturalness of bias and how insidious it is. Um, so if it's, if it's okay, let me target that first. And, and I'll say, so bias can be insidious, but it's just our nature. We, I mean, we all see things from our own perspective and it's, it's really hard. Even if you are looking at things from other people's perspectives, your perspective wins because it's right. you, right? I mean, right. so it's just, so we can do it inadvertently. And that just the knowledge that, that we are biased because of our perspective. Like I, I am a woman and it is impossible for me to separate that from my, my lived experience, you know, right. and I can say, well, I'm going to try to see this from the perspective of a man or someone who was raised in Asia or something. And I can't, you know, I can, I can try yeah. um, and I can take on certain things, but I, I can't separate certain qualities from myself. Um, so if you go in with the knowledge that you are, um, I guess, just you are biased and you can't not be, then the only way that you can let the data speak for itself is to get more and more and more people to look at the same data and come to the same conclusion, which is where global warming comes in. When you have like 99.9% .9 of the scientists across the world agreeing on something, that never happened. I mean, that just never happened. Yeah. So that's one way where I would say that if you can just acknowledge that we are biased and hopefully most people can acknowledge it because it, it's just easy to say, like when you have an argument with someone and you're like, oh yes, well, I said this. Oh, and you said this, you know, because it's just the way that you remember things, it's always from your perspective. Um, but going back to how do you deal with kind of the naysayers? Um, and that was a real challenge for me when I worked with the military, because if I, if I'm in the classroom, especially, um, I, I'm, you know, the, the expert in the field. And so the, you know, the students are like, tell me not only what I need to know, but, you know, you know, give me, give me this information so that I can be a better doctor or whatever. And I'm also the person grading them. So they're usually a bit more respectful, but when I was working <laughs> with the military, um, it, it's, it's still, in my opinion, there, I could still tell that there was a bit of a misogynistic bend, um, you know, and it's still a male dominated group. And so, because every commanding officer that I came into connection with was male. Um, and I, that's not saying that they were all biased, but it just, I think the fact that I was coming in, I'm not in the military, um, I'm an outsider and I was a woman and I was telling them things they didn't want to hear. It was just like strike, strike, strike. So early on, um, one of the first things I did was I gave um, education sessions to, it was to basically groups of commanding officers who were trying to figure out how to keep their pilots safe. And, um, and so what I was presenting to them was information about, um, they use different types of pharmacotherapy for, um, you know, like they have go pills and no go pills. So that, um, and the go pills are basically methamphetamine. I mean, that's, that's what it is. And it's it, but it's incredibly effective. So if you know the pilot's gonna have to stay alert and vigilant for a long time, it's an incredibly effective stimulant. Um, and so, but we talked about ways to help their, um, the pilots recover. 
and it includes things like basic sleep hygiene. And Cal, it goes back to what you just said. Like you don't want to be doing something that's super alerting right before bed. You um, want to have like this, this habit of, you know, like you shower, you change clothes, you kind of start to wind down. You think of like how you would treat a five-year-old in their bedtime. That's what you should be doing to yourself. Um, And then, but in military situations, especially when you are in the field, they often can't, um, you know, they're working shifts. They, how, how do you sleep when you're working at an air base and there are planes taking off all the time? So we were recommending things like sleep masks and um, earplugs. And I just want you to imagine uh, here is like it, me 20 years ago, going in with my little ponytail you know, <laughs> to this group of people with all of their medals on and everything. And I'm saying to them, yes you need to have sleep masks and earplugs for your pilots. And they're just kind of rolling their eyes. Um, And I could show them the data, bless you. I could show them the data um, as much as I wanted to, but until I made it relevant to them, it didn't matter. So the way that I made it relevant was I, I, I would say, here's what's happening with your fatigue, with your pilot's fatigue. Here's the likelihood that they'll crash this plane. Here's so uh, they care about finances. They care about their pilots too. Sure. But when it comes down to it, it's like, it's an expensive a, plane, a multi-million dollar plane. And here's the probability that this is going to happen. So the more fatigued the pilot is, the more the likely it is that you're going to see, um, you know, loss of this very expensive plane and a, an expert. And this is how much it costs to train a new pilot to get to this right. level and so on. <clears throat> that was, that was one way that was effective, but, um, I worked with um, somebody, and it's actually funny because I use this research now, but we were working on um, a special type of watch that's it's called a ready band or ready watch. And there's a company called Fatigue Science that puts this out. And they did most of their initial research with the Air Force. And it's kind of like a super fancy Fitbit, but it uses algorithms about um, your sleep metrics to say, what time did you go to sleep? How long did you sleep? what was your fragmentation like? Um, what's the, you know, all of these things. And there are like 10 different things that they put into this um, algorithm and it spits out this number and it gives you this predicted fatigue score. And it says, based on this, this is how um, sleepy we think you're going to be at this time of day. And this is how your cognitive capacity or your memory and your ability to react to things are going to work. And what's really cool is they studied this. And I, this is where I came in as we, I, we worked with air traffic controllers and we kept them awake for 36 hours and we tested them every three hours on different tasks. And we were able to show that this, this technology predicted their performance almost exactly. Wow. So, so instead of saying, this is what's going to happen if your pilots are, um, don't sleep for this long and let's just see what happens. We actually could predict it beforehand. And the, and I did not do this research, but the re, this research came out about 20 years ago. You were able to use these data to equate it to blood alcohol content. Wow. So, so I want to be really clear that it doesn't mean that they're drunk, but when you think of cognitive capacity and your, and your reaction times, when you are drunk and you have elevated blood alcohol content, re- research has shown that extended shift work and decreased sleep can be equated to blood alcohol content. So 24 hours without sleep is equivalent to a 0.10 blood alcohol level for cognition. Wow. And even getting um, only six hours of sleep a night for most people 
it's not everybody because everybody's a little bit different. It takes your cognitive capacity to about a 0.05, which is illegal in um, for driving in Europe and in Utah. <laughs> so, wow. so I think but, in Michigan as well, actually. Oh, well, and so that that was powerful. If I said to a commanding officer, your pilots are sleepy, they're like, eh, they'll sleep when they're dead. But if you say to them, your pilots are operating at a level that is legally drunk. Like I yeah. wouldn't trust them to get on a moped, wow. uh, you know, and that is where it became more powerful because, so it goes back to the theme of we have to make it relevant. We have to put it into terms that people understand. Um, the other thing, just to go back to your question that was like 10 minutes ago, cause I go on and on. Um, it's great. I, I ask crazy questions, carry on. But we, um, in some ways, we celebrate lack of sleep. Oh, my yeah. God. Not you in know, some we're ways. like, oh, I only got three hours and look at me. I'm doing great. I hate that game totally. so much. It's yeah, the worst and, game ever. And people do that. And But I, now that I want you to substitute drinking for that, oh, I had eight drinks and I'm doing great um, because that's what it equates to, that your brain functions and it's really not your brain uh, only, it's your whole body. Yeah. Is when you are sleep impaired, it functions like you are intoxicated. And we would never ever celebrate intoxication in our pilots and our physicians and our police officers. Um, and yet when people work shift work, that's basically what we're asking them to do. Well, and I think that this is a really like I, I this is fascinating all by itself. And I think it is it, obviously an important point about data that like because I'm the researcher and I know what all this means, I'm like, oh my gosh, can't you see it? But you really do have to, I mean, it goes back to your point about how science is sort of historically not great at communicating the importance of the data that is discovered that people don't connect the dots in their own lives. And so part of our job as researchers and information communicators is to say, how do I make this matter to you in a way that's accurate. Like, I mean, I, you know, I appreciate you breaking down, like, we're not saying they're drunk, but they sort of may as well be. And here's, right. uh, here's a thing that wouldn't be acceptable if it was couched differently. Right. Yeah. And that's, and I think it goes back it just the, the relevance, the, the coming at it from different perspectives. So, but in real life, um, we have to find the happy medium. So as a researcher who has no investment in like, I don't know how much time and energy and effort they're putting into running their Air Force base. I know sleep. And I come to them and I say, here's what you should be doing. And they're like, well, I've got all this to consider. So we have to find a happy medium. And I did some consulting with um, people who had ran a few factories, oh, who ran a few factories in Utah. Um, because they came to me and said, you know, you know about shift work and what can we do to minimize the effects of shift work on our employees? Well, it, it makes no sense from an economic standpoint to have a factory that sits empty half the day, you know, so, uh, so shift work makes sense for some factories. And so if you're going to have it, there are ways that you can do it and you can do it in a way that is productive, that minimizes the harm on people. And you just have to find that economic and science balance. Because unfortunately, economics really, that, I mean, money drives everything. 
um, if knowledge drove everything, I don't know where we'd be. Oh, I can't. It's hard to even imagine, isn't it? <laughs> well, and and to um, not to do a deep dive off on this end, but I've mentioned pharmacotherapy a few times. But um, when you see things on the news, or sorry, when you see things on TV about um, advertising certain medications that help with different things, it's because there is a pharmaceutical company that gets paid massive amounts of money to show you this. Um, nobody gets paid to tell you if you just sleep more, you would actually see decreases in obesity, decreases in hypertension, decreases in cardiovascular disease, um, decreases in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, because sleep is related to almost every disorder that's out there. That's not a congenital disorder, but nobody gets, makes money from telling you to sleep. So that's why it's not on TV and being advertised. So it's, that goes back to, um, as an educated consumer, we need to be aware of things. We see so many things, but where is that message coming from? And why are they sending that message? So if if something is advertised during prime time, um, then you know that somebody is paying a lot of money because they want to convey that message to you and they're going to put their spin on it. Um, versus if you see something on um, NPR or um, or you know something that is non-proprietary, then um, then to me, I would, I would give that a little bit more credence. Um, I'll say just a funny aside. My daughter has Spotify and for a while she had the one with, um, ads in it and she was <laughs> listening to some, some music from like the sixties and seventies. So she kept getting ads for like, insure <laughs> <laughs> yes. and things just like, so there, there's so many, um, things now where they will gear the ads toward you. And so you just, I just think even now it's even more important to be skeptical of, of what you see. Um, and, and just think with a scientific perspective, like, why am I seeing that? What does that really mean? And where do I go to get the real information? Cause that's another thing. I mean, people get so much of their information off of Instagram or TikTok or Facebook, which has no regulatory control, obviously. So, um, there need to be reliable science sources where people can go and say, Oh, I can believe this. And that's a, yeah. So if you come up with a way to do that too, that is, but who pays for that? If it's not from a certain perspective, if it's right? just so, good for people, nobody's going to pay for that. <laughs> right. So the, the medical school um, that I used to work for the university of South Carolina um, uh, school of medicine in Greenville, um, they have a, a lifestyle medicine curriculum that is geared toward helping people be healthier through lifestyle changes. The school accepts no financial incentives from pharmaceutical companies, and most medical schools do accept some funding um, yeah. from pharmaceuticals. But because we are em emphasizing the importance of lifestyle changes to help make people healthier, and but again, that message is rarely conveyed to the general public. Um, so we are working on educating the physicians so that they can be the ones who share that information. Yeah, this is another red thread that emerges in many of our episodes, capitalism. And just that, I mean, if there's an, if there are two main enemies to like real information, it's bias and capitalism. <laughs> and then maybe they're hooked up together. A bit. I was going to say, how do you separate them? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And I think that, um, there's a lot of misinformation and um, and I think that a lot of times it happens without um, nefarious intent, you know, people, but 
you know, someone has an experience and they post something about it and then people believe that experience and then they use that as if it's fact, as if that is, you know, this has proven this, oh, um, my cousin's third wife or whatever got a COVID vaccine and then, you know, went into anaphylactic shock and then they post it and then people are using that as evidence somewhere. And I'm like, just as, as an educated consumer, look at multiple resources, look at the source, look at multiple resources, make it relevant to yourself and, and be the, I'm sorry, I'm going to channel Gandhi here, but be the change that you want to see and don't perpetuate misinformation. Um, and if you find a great resource that gives information, um, like there's a, on Facebook, there's science super friends, which is a really great place that you can get information about COVID. Um, that is unbiased. It is put out by scientists who are not affiliated with one institution. It's worldwide. So um, it's a, but if you find something like that, let share that information instead of sharing like, oh, my cousin's third wife, blah, 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 (laughs) instead of word of mouth. One of the resources that I really enjoy that I come back to a lot. So all the listeners will be familiar. Um, I really enjoy thinking fast and slow by Daniel Kahneman. And there's a great section about risk and how people perceive risk and how really bad at it we are. So the like the worst places for us for risk perception are things that are really small and things that are really big. And in the middle, like we're kind of okay. But like you said, someone took a COVID shot and then had an anaphylactic shock reaction and then things happened. And that's like one little piece of this enormous picture, but because we're so bad at relating small pieces to risk, we're like, oh, that's huge. It's huge. And it's also very well, impressive. And it was in really bright lettering and yeah, <laughs> I could see and, it clearly. Yeah. And that's, I, I mean, it, it's why everybody is so afraid of sharks because right. we, have we have shark week. Why wouldn't I mean, you be afraid? <laughs> exactly. Um, and yet there's a debate about whether or not your children should be vaccinated for HPV. It's a preventable form of cancer. Yeah. <laughs> bad at risk. Real bad. bad we are really risk. bad at risk assessment. And Cal, that goes back to your thing about, you know, we're going to put, we're going to try to put our own spin and cause and blame on things. Like, um, I have a friend who did not want her daughter to get the HPV vaccine because it, it um, implied that her daughter was going to have sex. Uh, she will eventually. Yeah. And therefore, (laughs) but there's a critic, but I think if you can say it's cancer, there's a, there's a window of time when this is most efficacious and we look at the data and not that bias that's further down, you know, and not that, and and our, our estimation of risk is very, very low. But as a parent, I'm thinking if I can do anything to prevent my child from being hurt in the future. Right. So. Um, anyway, so that's, um, I'm just saying, so you know, I'm writing down everything that y'all say about different podcasts and books and <laughs> things like that too, so that I can go stalk them. Excellent. Um, but yeah, I, I will say that in terms of statistics, my understanding of statistics has increased as I use them more. And I think that that's what you'll see too, going back to my file cabinet analogy, um, when I put the first file cabinet together. It took like an hour. The second one took about 20 minutes because I knew what I was doing. And so um, one of the things I think that we have this intellectual barrier to wanting to get involved with statistics at all, because it's such a huge 
gap between what we think we know and what we need to know. But once you leap that gap, the gap gets smaller and smaller every time you use it and it just gets easier. Um, And before I sound too condescending about it, I will say though that there are certain stats that I use all the time and that I love. And then there are others that I'm like, I'm going to go have to review those, (laughs) you know, because we just get used to the ones that we use all the time and we get used to reading and interpreting certain things. So, um, but the more you do it, the easier it gets. And that goes back to Corey's idea or, you know, incorporating it into video games too. I wish. Um, Listeners who listen week to week will remember last week when we talked to Kathy Ryan um, and we talked about how that first intellectual step is a doozy and it's a long way up and a lot of effort, but after that, the steps get easier. So every time you confront something and you're like, man, this looks real hard, remind yourself that it is real hard and it's a doozy, you can still do it. Mm-hmm. I believe in you. Well, you and I think, to- you know, you, we think of um, when are we supposed to learn statistics and you think in school, right? Um, and I would say that as I get older, I have appreciate learning opportunities that are driven by my own choices. Um, In school, I think all of us felt like, we've got to learn this because somebody's telling us we have to learn this. And this is an opportunity for people to take control over their own education and to say, I want to know more about X and you pursue that and you learn more. And if you don't understand some of it, um, keep going, keep, take that first intellectual leap. But uh, so often we have that perspective of, oh, I'm done with school, therefore I'm done with learning. And I I hope to never be done with learning. No, exactly. Well, and I feel like statistics maybe needs a better agent or like a rebranding campaign because it's one of those words that like people go, oh, statistics. And it's like, okay, so what we need, it needs a better name or, you know, whatever. Like, it's not what you think. So, um. The first class that I taught in statistics at the medical school here, um, it was a class for first year students um, and it it had a hundred students in it and then 20 physicians because the the students are in groups with physicians as part of their groups. And so that they are learning with the physicians and applying things to um, clinical scenarios. And the very first class, I stood up and introduced myself and I said, and today I get to talk to you about statistics. And one of the physicians on the front row said very loudly, oh, no, not statistics. Like, and it was it. He wasn't joking. (laughs) It was it was a. um, And so I just want you to think about, first of all, how hard that was to then go on from there. Um, But at the end it was really, really rewarding because what we did was we took cases from the hospital that the medical school was affiliated with. And I said, so here are some of the data that the people in the emergency department saw. And how can you use this to think, you know, how do you think about this? And here's an article that goes with it. How do you interpret that? And by the end, when students said, oh, this makes so much more sense, I kind of wanted to look over at that position and go, you know, (laughs) <laughs> but um, but even highly educated professionals who this is a, a man who was probably in his 50s, who is, um, you know, at the peak of his probably career and education, who even he was like, statistics. So it's 
it's ever oh, Cal, your face was even doing it when I well, I'm I am sad because I don't want to see a physician who is afraid of and doesn't like statistics. Like one of the things I love about my primary provider is that every time I see her, she's like, Have you seen this study about blah blah? And then she like breaks down the statistics in a useful way. And I'm like, I trust you. You can read these things. Like, how could you be a medical provider and be afraid of statistics? And but, but I think it goes back to the way that probably all of us were taught. Um, we were taught in a way that didn't make it appealing to us. And you you learn what you need to know and then you move on. Yeah. And true. I think that that's where as an educator, that gives me so much hope for the future that we are figuring out better and better ways to educate people and to make it more relevant. And so I know that the medical students that I teach today will be more like the doctor that you have, Cal, that, and not like the person who was like, because you can't, you can't be a good provider if you don't, if you can't interpret the data, right? I mean, you just can't, um, that, that makes you no different than WebMD, right? That says, oh, I'm just going to take your out, you know, (laughs) say, so, um, yeah, I, I, I think that, that as a teacher, I, from from teaching seventh grade to teaching college to teaching medical students, um, I really enjoy the challenge of trying to figure out the best way to make it relevant. And it comes back to that, you know, people come from their own angles and their own perspectives and how can you make it relevant to them? Um, and for, for the individual out there listening to this, if you want to make something, if you want to try to figure it out, find an article that speaks to you, that's something that you are very interested in and read it. And if you don't understand the statistics, I, I can recommend a lot of really good statistics websites. Um, there's something called Stat Girls. That's a really good way that, that basically just walks you through step by step and says, oh, that's what a T-test is. Or um, this is what significance actually means. Oh. So um, I when I teach um, the, the medical students about stats, I have a a meme and it's Inigo Montoya um, from um, <laughs> Princess Bride. Princess Bride. I, I yeah. do not think that word means what, yeah, means what you think it that means. That word means what you think it means. Awesome. <laughs> um, totally. Because everybody thinks the word significant means like, oh, there's this huge effect. And that's really not what it means. It just means that you found a difference and you're probably not wrong. That's all probably. I mean. I think it's, we should, it, we should probably. We should use him again and say, my name is Inigo Montoya and you killed my data. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> Not prepared to die. Um, that, but, that's something I've but, been thinking about a lot, actually, is like how many words used in research papers are used in ways that I don't use them during my life. Like the word affect and then the word affect mean yeah. two totally different things and yes. are spelled exactly the same. And if you read them with the first definition, the sentence doesn't make sense at all. So... And, Affect and effect are two things that um, I think are really important for research methodology. Um, and the, the word significant, we use it all the time in everyday language in a way that is not statistical. Not the same. Um, no. And so when I work with students about writing papers, if they want to use the word significant at, like, the way a normal person does, I say, you can't use that in a research paper. Because yeah. in a research paper, significant means you did a test based on certain data. And you're predicting that if you applied it to lots of people that you would get the same result. Yes. That's what it means. I mean, right. you, prob- you probably aren't wrong. <laughs> so it's, it's all about, um, 
it going back to replication, the more you replicate over and over and over again, and you get significant results, the more you can believe those results. Like I, one study does not mean anything. It just tells you, huh, maybe more people should study this. Um, there was a, uh, I, I did research with light therapy. So, you know, like a, an alerting stimulus to try to keep yourself awake and everything. And so they're blue, you've heard about blue light, right? And that's one reason, Cal, why you say don't, um, with your son, don't use screens within an hour and a half of bedtime because blue light is a learning stimulus. Um, so there was a study that came out probably about 30 years ago now that said that um, blue light, if, if you shine light on the back of people's knees, it's an alerting stimulus. Um, and I what? remember thinking- what? Wait a minute, what? Um, so- this is my point. This study came out that said, if you shine light on the back of people's knees, and there was even a, there, there was a thing called Scientific American Frontiers that had Alan Alda mm -hmm. in it. And he even did a video yeah. with this. It was um, just the one study? Just the one study. It has never mm. been replicated. Oops. Nobody's ever been able to prove it again or to demonstrate it again. And that is our, it just, just what happened there. Because I did the same thing. I'm like, think about what you could do because you can't shine a bright light in an air traffic controller's eyes because it, it ruins their vision. And so they mm -hmm. can't control traffic, but you could put light on the back of their knees. There's never been another study that replicated it. That's why there's the importance of replication because significance, they found a significant difference with light behind the knees. They probably weren't wrong, but there's still a 5% chance that they were. And in this case, nobody's been able to replicate it. So they are probably wrong. And we don't and how know many people? until time goes by. Uh, what'd you say? How many people were in that study? I, I don't remember, honestly, um, but it's just an example of why science is so different from everything else, because you have to think about it. They did one study with a certain number of people in one place, but what happens over time? And I'll tell you, it's just the reason behind this is because um, certain animals have um, the ability to detect light on different parts of their bodies. So lizards and birds. Um, okay, that's actually, what I was like, who said, wait, I have an idea. <laughs> yeah, but um, lizards and birds can detect light from through their skulls. And so they uh, their pineal gland actually has light detectors in it. Oh. So even if they have no eyes at all, they can still tell if it's light out or not. Um, and so there was the idea that um, the, the popliteal region right behind the knee is where you have a really high um, surface mm -hmm. area for blood vessels. And they yeah. thought, oh, well, let's see if we shine light here, something happens. And I mean, so there's, there's theory behind it, there's sure. logic behind it, but it just has never been replicated. So that's huh. another reason why um, you can't trust one study. And we should be very, very careful about putting all our eggs in one basket when one random study from 50 years ago found something a little off about vaccinations. Um, and then people draw these conclusions about the role that vaccinations play in um, different disorders. So we just have to be really, really careful about interpreting one study. Um, we need replication and we need you to find a low probability of error over and over and over again. So don't think I didn't sit with lights behind my knees for the long oh, time. <laughs> I, I, I didn't. I knew that you did. I knew it. Yeah, totally. I wonder how much placebo you can get out of that. I'm a scientist. So I mean, I'm like, and I, I have to be perfectly honest. I know exactly what I should do in terms of light dark cycle and going to sleep and things like that. 
I'm still watching TV right before I go to bed. I, and there's yeah. like what I know you should do and what we actually do. Yeah. And so it's just, it's finding that happy medium and give yourself the grace to recognize that we can't always be perfect because I, I would be drinking a lot more water. I would be probably, well, I would have stood up and walked around during this podcast, you know, things like that. So I was watching this Ted talk by this guy who has just figured out how to reverse aging. And part of how he does it is he only eats once a day and he does some other things that like, listen, I don't want to be 150 only eating once a day. I get up to eat. I, I, I would rather die at 60 and eat as much as I want. <laughs> I so, completely yeah. agree. <laughs> yeah. I, I've been reading this book called scale and, um, it talks about the maximum life expectancy of a human, which is 125 years. And like, we have no idea how to get past 125. And actually it sounds like no one's ever gotten to 125. It's like 121 is our max right now. Um, but he does make an excellent distinction between prolonging life and prolonging health mm-hmm. and that they are not the same thing. And which would you prefer? And yeah, maybe right. we should be spending money somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> so I will tell you that one of my life goals is to write a book. Um, that is, it's called the armchair neuroscientist. That is basically what everybody in the, you know, just normal people should know about neuroscience. And so a lot of the things that I've been talking about in the podcast are things that I want to put in there about how like, you know, just our light dark cycle and sleep and how, um, and part of it would be how to interpret statistics. Cause I think that that's something that everybody needs to, um, you know, obviously this book is going to be bigger than war and peace, but, um, but I also want to talk about things like nutrition and the way it influences our brain. And, um, so, but y'all have been fantastic because as we talk, I'm like taking notes to, Oh, I should mention this. I should mention this, but if you ever have any ideas, Um, I really just want to have a book that is, um, just kind of a fun read. Um, have y'all ever read the book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers? No. I know of it. I haven't read it. It is one of my favorite books in the world. Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. It's by Robert Sapolsky. Oh, I love him. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, um, and he's genius and he's hilarious. So it's, it's written for the general public and it, it talks about stress and the role that stress plays in our life. And um, it is absolutely incredible. Um, he, I mean, the chapters, he's got one on like hot fudge Sundays and the runs. Um, it's, I mean, it's just, he's, he's very irreverent um, and it's hilarious. And he talks about like why pigeons um, poop when they fly off, like why, you know, when a flock of pigeons, because they're, they don't weigh as much if they poop. So it makes it easier for them to escape. I mean, it's just it's random stuff like that, but I, I, I want to model my book after Robert Sapolsky's. Um, so if y'all have any suggestions, um, for things that should go into this book, which I'm going to start writing any second now. I totally um, get that. I mm-hmm. I'm, I'm writing one like that, not same topic, but yeah, any minute it's going to just any, fall out of me. Yeah. I have so many pages of notes and post-its, um, with ideas, maybe that I should just write it as a post-it I mean, that's kind of people's attention span these days. I think that might really be the way to go. Well, and my exposure to Sapolsky is um, his book, Behave, um, about the biology of humans at our best Mm -hmm. and worst. And um, it's dense, but man, talk about debunking connections that we've like made (laughs) questionably. 
Yeah. And, and behave is a lot harder to get through yeah. than why zebras don't get ulcers. So <laughs> I, I, um, I taught a health psychology class for medical students and we used why zebras don't get ulcers as the book. Um, and it was because I wanted them to use it as physicians, but also as, um, for themselves. Yeah. So to be their own first patient and then to talk about, so when you're talking to your patients about, um, stress and anxiety, here are some things to use. And, and of course, incorporating, um, ways to communicate in a way that makes sense to your patients. Yeah. Oh man. So many, have you thought about graphic novels? Oh, um, just saying. I did. So my daughter was a big fan of graphic novel novels and she's also really artistic. So I have thought about, I, I won't say I thought about doing it as a graphic novel, but thought about doing it with um, a graphic novel component to each yeah. chapter. Old so diagrams. kind of like I have, I have the, the chapter that's written in regular words and then like a story that goes with it for each chapter. Well, you could, you know, you could even do like, um, like hypercapitalism. I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but it's like it's sort of a comic book, but it's a great like he actually explodes basic concepts about capitalism and how it started and how it's progressed in culture, but it's all with these funny cartoons and there's like, you know, a couple of characters that show up throughout the book that sort of illustrate different concepts and for me, it, I like I wanted to know more about capitalism, but like picking up an actual book about capitalism, I was like, no, thank you. But that thing, I was like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. So, so many options. Okay. That got a big arrow next to it on my list of books that I'm looking at. <laughs> in my presentation in February, I will be able to give you some examples and to show you some of these figures and about how people have lied with statistics and things that we see from every day. And I'll, I'll bring current events in. Um, just so that you can see um, ways that people interpret things and then ways that they probably should be interpreted. That's awesome. That's Great. exactly what we want. Yep. That'll be very exciting. Well, thank you, Lauren, for being here. Um, I think everybody got a lot of resources from everyone. <laughs> I think we both have really long lists. Um, they will all be in the show notes. I therefore command. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. I hope to see you all at the symposia in February. I think we're going to have a really good time. Um, all of our guests are very excited about all the things they have to talk about. I'm very excited to see their presentations right along with you. So, uh, should be, should be a good time. And you can wear your pajamas or pajamas or pajamas or PJs or whatever makes you comfortable. Well, and I just want to say thank you so much for giving me this opportunity and that I hope that no one was bored or turned off by the discussion of statistics. <laughs> we do our best and that is all we can do. <laughs> Thanks everyone. We will see you next time. Interdisciplinary is produced by Heelwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at healwell.org. That's podcast at healwell.org. Thanks for listening.